great hymn as a follow-up from this morning, the first hour, and the assurance that we have from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, and following that was so clearly brought, brought to us this morning. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Galatians, the third chapter, if you would, please. Galatians chapter 3. Also, just a word of clarification. Somebody said to me this morning that they like my Purdue tie. This will be the last time I'm wearing this tie. It will be red Wisconsin Badger tie um, in the future. I had no knowledge that this was a Purdue, <laughs> Purdue tie. <laughs> One of my favorite books of all times, I think I've mentioned to you before, is the book by James Boyce. Anything that he's written, I tend to will grab hold of if, if I have access to it is this book entitled, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace? I love that title. And I think the Apostle Paul would love that title likewise with reference to the book of Galatians because in the book of Galatians, in effect, he's asking, what what has happened to that gospel of grace that that I brought to you, Galatians, in his initial missionary journey throughout the region of Galatia to all these churches. By the way, notice at the beginning of the book of Galatians, if you would, just at the very beginning, in verse 2, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches, plural, of Galatia. It wasn't just one church. It was a number of churches, region of Asia Minor, and beyond that, the apostle Paul not only went and took this, this gospel of grace of God's amazing grace in the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, but also in regions beyond that, that particular area. And if you look at the beginning of the book of, of Galatians, it's no surprise to you that he says in verse 3, grace to you, and you look at the end of the book of Galatians, turn way over to chapter 6, and just look at the last verse, verse 18 of chapter 6. Paul would say, from beginning to end, from beginning to end in the Christian life, it's all of what? It's all of God's grace. You notice verse 18, the grace of our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. But likewise, he has a great concern about what's going on at these churches following his going there and presenting this good news. These churches were both Jews and Gentile believers that came to believe upon Christ through the Apostle Paul's preaching. But he says over in chapter 4, verse 1, would you glance there with me? Thanks for just moving around in the Bible. That's okay if we're in the same book here, isn't it? One person say yes, it's okay, okay, yes. Chapter 4, verse 11, he says, I I fear for you. Now somebody looks at you and they say, I I I fear for you, that's serious, isn't it? He says, I am concerned about you. In the same chapter, if you look over at verse 20, at the end, chapter 4, verse 20, he says, I'm perplexed about you. You Galatians have me scratching my head trying to figure out what's happened to you. I fear for you. I have great concern concerning you. Now, Paul and his team, Barnabas and others, Timothy and others, had taken the gospel to these communities in those regions that I mentioned And you can be sure that the Apostle Paul among these people that he started, not with the good news, but the real news of man's condition. 
And he made it clear to them that they were alienated from God and the, any kind of righteousness that they were seeking on their own, by their own human efforts, were falling short, way short, to be brought into right relationship with God, to be acceptable for him. I wouldn't be surprised if the Apostle Paul didn't quote Isaiah 64, 6, where we read in the Bible that all of our righteousnesses, all of our human efforts to gain to gain righteousness before God, to work our way into God's heaven, he says in Isaiah 64, 6, are as filthy rags. And I'm convinced that the Apostle Paul would have conveyed to them the only thing that they, that they only deserve, thing they deserve from God, or would merit from God, was the justice of God that comes upon us because of the penalty of our sin. But with that clear realization that Paul brought before these people, that all have sinned, say it with me, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He also conveyed to them this, this good news. And these Galatians were not like some of you. They didn't go to Sunday school. And for many of them, when they heard the, the, the good news, it was, it was real news to them. It was first-time news for them and the hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ and that they could have forgiveness of their sins, and they could be right with God, and they could have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to their account. And something happened when he went there and he preached the gospel. Great things happened among these people who heard from Paul. In fact, over in chapter 4, you don't have to turn this time, we're going to stay right there in chapter 3, the Galatians, he, he mentions to the Galatians that when he came to them, they responded to him and to his preaching as if an angel of God had come to them. So blessed by what he brought so clearly to them. But in the midst of all of this, then something happened. And what happened was, there were always those who seemed to follow the Apostle Paul, many of them as key reps from from Jerusalem, that we identify, we use this word, the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were claimed to be professionals on the truth. They they had all of of the truth concerning salvation. And, And they came in among the Galatians, and they appeared to gain a hearing among them. And one of the things that they said to the Galatians is, it's okay, Paul, what Paul preached and about Christ, that was good, but you're lacking something. And you need something more to complete this work that the Apostle Paul has given to you. And now, in light of that, the Apostle Paul is really conveying to them in the book of Galatians that they're drifting. They're drifting away from that message that they've heard. Somebody has put it together this way so excellently. They are drifting from grace, and they're drifting toward salvation by grace plus law. They're drifting from faith, and they're moving toward works. And they're drifting from Calvary, what they heard about Jesus Christ, and they're drifting back toward the old covenant of the ceremonies and law and the, and the feasts and the festivals that were never given as a means of saving anyone. But they're drifting back toward that. And in so doing, they're drifting from the new freedom that they had in the Lord Jesus Christ of being freed from the bondage of their own sin, and now they're drifting toward a new kind of slavery. 
a slavery of trying to keep the law and all of these Old Testament things that related to not to save them, but to help them see, as the book of Romans tells us, that through the law comes a knowledge of what? A knowledge of man's true condition. My wife used to listen years ago to J. Vernon McGee. Anybody ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? J. Vernon McGee used to say that the law is like a mirror let down from heaven, and God allows us to look into that mirror and see our true condition brought a knowledge of sin, not to save us. And so what's happening now, now among these particular Galatians, is the same thing that took place in other places, regions beyond Galatia, and it's the same thing that was the problem that was brought up at the first council of the church As we read in Acts 15, some men came down from Judea and they began teaching the brethren, and here's what they said. Unless you are circumcised, come under the law, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be what? You can't be saved. And so these Gentiles, in effect, they were saying, you have to become Jews in order to be saved. And to the Jews, they were saying, yes, it's Jesus, but now you have to keep the law and all of the ceremonies. And it amounted to the most common false gospel that was true then and is true today, and it's the gospel of Jesus plus. And if you're going to be saved, it's, you, have to, yes, you, have, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also have to, and you fill in the blank, you also have to be a member of church. You also have to be baptized. You also have to keep the Ten Commandments. You also have to do this, and after that, something else, to complete or to ensure your salvation. We're not talking about the Christian life now. We're talking about how to be made right with the God of heaven. And so when we get to chapter 3 in the book of Galatians, Paul again is going to drive home this thing, that this righteousness comes to a sinner but one way. Justification, or as theologians often express the idea, is that the instrumental cause of this justification that comes to us comes by one way and one way alone, and that's faith. By faith. And that's the theme of the whole book of Galatians, it's the theme of the whole book of Romans, and the theme throughout the, the, the Bible itself, that the way that man can be made right with God is through what God has done in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that becomes applicable to you through this cause, this instrumental cause, through this response of faith. So here's what he does in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. In chapter 1... The focus is that he tells us that the gospel that he preached, he says, it didn't come to me, come, come from me. It came by revelation from God. So he's arguing in chapter 1 that the gospel that he preached is God's gospel, not his. And then in chapter 2, then he drives home this reality that verse 16, if you glance at verse 16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through, there it is, faith in Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that, again, we may be justified, made right before God 
declared right with God by faith. Faith in what? Faith in who? In Christ. We often say the person of Christ, who he is, and the work of Jesus Christ, what he has done in the cross and in the resurrection. Down in verse 21 that he says, I don't nullify the grace of God, but if righteousness comes through the law, what? Then Christ died needlessly to no avail, if you can get it any other way than through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, back to chapter 3, what he's doing in 1 through 5 is that he's asking them to think about what happened to them when they heard this good news from Paul about Christ. In fact, look at verse 1 through verse 5. Just glance at the text, and you'll notice there's question mark like behind almost every verse, if not every verse in that section. Do you see that? He's going to ask them one question after another relating to when he came and when he preached the gospel. And the argument that he's making concerning justification by faith alone in this chapter is an argument from personal experience. One through five. Wiersbe says it best. I love the way he says it. It's a matter of what happened to them. And Paul is asking them to look back and say, all right, when, you, when I came and you heard the gospel, what happened to you and how did that happen? Did it happen through your trying to find justification through the law? Did it happen through circumcision or something else? Because Paul knew two things about them. Number one, he knew that they were changed and they knew that they were changed when they heard that message. So he's really making an argument here from the reality of personal experience of what happened to them. And he's saying if that happened some other way, by some other means, then by faith alone in the gospel that he preached, then what was it? How did that happen? How did that take place with reference to what has taken place in the change that they experienced? We know, or if we don't know, we ought to know that 2 Corinthians 5.17 verse, right? If any man be in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creature. Change. Something's happened. And that's the argument that he's making here. Now, any basis of a personal experience that we're going to make a, an argument or our apologetic always has to be grounded in the Scriptures itself because experience is subjective. We understand that, Right? Say, well, this happened to me, that happened to you. We talk about experience. That's the subjective realm. What we need is objective truth. And that's why we have to anchor that in whatever God says in his word. And that's why in verse 6 and following, that's what Paul begins to do. He says, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him, to him as righteousness. And he's quoting the Old Testament. So Paul's going to move to an argument from the Scriptures. But in 1 through 5, his argument is with reference to saying, all right, what happened to you and how did it happen? And you know it happened on the basis of one message and one message alone. And that was the gospel of grace. Now, it's important for us, before we dive right into verse 1, for us to catch this main argument in this sense. If that's the argument that he's using here with reference to what happened to them, when they heard the gospel, then the question for you and I before we dive right into verse 1 is this. How has your life been changed by the gospel? Or let me ask you this question. Has your life 
been changed by the gospel. Some of you, I'm sure, hearing the gospel early in life, maybe grow up in Sunday school, that type of thing. Maybe it's just kind of clicking as you're going along and it came to a place in your life. Others of you, maybe it was later on in life. And you heard Christ, and you heard Christ alone, and it's the only way to be saved, and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And having believed that, how was your life changed? And how continually, as you grow in the gospel and in the understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for you, how is your life continuing to be changed by the gospel? There's that little uh, chorus. I won't punish you and try to sing it. But it says something like, something happened to me when I gave my life to Jesus. And the theology there is not the best because we don't get saved by our giving our lives to Jesus. We are saved by Jesus giving his life for us. Can you say amen to that? But then it says something like this. Things I loved before have passed away and things I love for far more are here to, everybody say, are here to what? Stay. Mm-hmm. And he's making that argument right here in this section. And it's imperative then that we just stop for a moment and say, if we say anything this morning, okay, this gospel of grace, this good news about Jesus Christ, have I believed it? Have I believed it? And having believed it, how has my life been changed And how is my life being changed? Because you cannot go from darkness to light, from death to life. Being dead spiritually and being alive spiritually without having noticed something took place in your life that has brought true change with reference to how you see the world, how you see things, how your speech changes, how your desires change, how your priorities change and how your desires for how you're going to live your life changes. All right, pastor, get to the book. Want to say amen to that? All right, notice verse 1. You foolish Galatians. Uh, I do not deem that to be a compliment. How about you? You foolish. In fact, look down in verse 3. He says it twice, doesn't he? You foolish Galatians. What's going on with you? Read on in verse 1. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? That's looking back. He's going back to when he presented Christ to them. And they heard of him. They saw him through his preaching. What's happened to you since then? You foolish Galatians. Now these people were not dumb. They were not ignorant but they were lacking wisdom and discernment. And they were being gullible to what they were hearing. And if we're not growing in the Word and we're not growing in our faith and we're lacking wisdom and we're lacking discernment, we may be susceptible to stuff that is not consistent with the Word of God. And that's seemingly what had happened to them. They were not stupid people, but they were gullible in what they had heard from these Judaizers. And in effect, as Gromacki well says it, 
the, the, the sense of the Judaizers was that was justification by faith was started, yes, through Christ and believing upon him, but it was a start only in the right direction and it had to end with justification by law. So they always seem to get back to that particular thing. And then you got the question of, well, how much law and how, how well do I have to do in the law? And what if I'm not doing well enough in the law and adding that to this gospel of grace of Christ and Christ alone? Turn with me over to chapter 5. Over to chapter 5, verse 10. 5.10, Paul says, I have a confidence in you in the Lord that you adopt no other view. Back it up there. He's talking about with reference to Christ. Then he says this, and notice it's in the singular, but the one who is disturbing you, the one who is disturbing you, you will bear his, he will bear his judgment, whoever he is. So what seemed to be going on? It seems that one of the Judaizers, maybe one among a group that were constantly following up the Apostle Paul, was the key ringleader and the one who could express this, this, this salvation of Jesus plus. And he would come and maybe very be eloquent in his presentation. Those that had responded to Paul's message and come in and say, now here's what salvation really encompasses. And here's how to, how to complete, how to finish this work of God in your life. And were these people, were they somewhat razzle-dazzled with the man's, with, with his ability to communicate and his skill to do so, but they failed to discern the content of the false message that they were receiving? And back to that verse 1, notice with me again. Paul speaks of bewitched you. You were, you were, um, you were memor- mesmerized by them. But you shouldn't have been. Notice what else he says in that verse. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Oh my. Would you agree with me there probably was no one who ever preached Christ better than the Apostle Paul? Would you agree with me about that? And when Paul preached Christ... This word publicly portrayed is the idea of something to be up there. Like if you look on our two walls, there's those things that are up on the wall and you can read them. And it was like a poster and the whole world could see. It's like if you drive down the highway and there's a great billboard and it says, Jesus saved. And the idea is that he's saying, when I came and when I preached to you, you not only heard about Christ, but you saw him. You saw him on that cross. One writer says it this way, Paul preached the cross in such a way that you could see the event of the sinless Son of God hanging on that cross. And their lives were so impacted by it. They could see him as if he were there getting, watching the soldiers drive the nails through his his wrists. And in seeing from him presenting Christ and his sinlessness and his sacrificial death and seeing and hearing about what happened on the cross, yet alone the reality of the resurrection, my, their lives were transformed. And yet he's saying to him, wait a minute, somebody's come along and you're now, you're drifting from that and you're in trouble spiritually as a result of believing something other 
that your justification before God comes other than by faith and faith alone. So in verses 2 through 4, he asks them three primary questions, and in verses 5, he puts it all together. And again, the whole argument here is now having related back to what happened to them when they heard about Christ, he's asking them questions as to, all right, now, how did that happen? Notice in verse 2, this is only one thing that I want to find out from you. I want to know from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with, everybody say it, by hearing with what? Hearing with faith. How did you get the Spirit? Did you get the Spirit through the law? Did you get the Spirit? Did God transform your life by trying to work this thing out on your own? How did that happen to you? How, he's asking the question, how did you receive the Spirit? And we go back into the book of Acts and we look at those passages in Acts 13, 14, and 15 and Paul's ministry among all those Galatian churches. We're reminded that the disciples were continually filled with joy, joy that Dave talked about this morning, seen in somebody else's life and their joy in the Word of God, but joy and with the Holy Spirit. And there's only one agency that brings life to a dead soul, and that's we call that the work of regeneration, do we not? And the work of regeneration is the miracle of the Spirit of God who brings life to a dead soul. And when that takes place in that new life that one has, then the Spirit of God is abiding within the life of a believer. And he's saying, well, how did that happen? That happened by law or going back to the old covenant? Turn with me to the Gospel of John, if you would. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And notice how Christ speaks of the wonder of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer. John chapter 14. 14, 15, and 16 are those key chapters about Christ and his teaching about the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 16, 14, 16, notice what our Lord Jesus says about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you. How long? That is the Spirit of Truth, capital S, the Holy Spirit whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you, and he will be what? He'll be living in you. Again, Paul's saying, how'd that happen? How did that come to you? I don't know about you, when I was a new believer in Christ at 21 years old, somebody asked me to convey the gospel to others, and I was not rooted in the gospel, and all I could tell them was, Something happened to me, and I see life differently. That's all I really could express to them. Something happened, I know that. Now God used the word to do that. A key verse in my life was Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I want to come back to that later. Most of you know that by heart. But being absolutely new in the faith, I, if you'd have said to me, is God living in you, or do you have the Spirit? I don't know if I could have articulated that to you in terms of theology, but I would have probably answered, yeah, I know God's real in my life. 
I know he's come into my life. Can you identify with that this morning? Can you say that? You say, I know, if I know that I know anything, I know that God is real in my life, having been changed by what Christ has done and my believing in him. What happened to them when they believed? What happened? Well, one thing for sure is that the Holy Spirit, just as mentioned, came into their life in a beautiful way, as we read in, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, will be in you. And you remember Romans 8 9 conveys to us the fact that anyone who is ever saved, the moment you are saved, what do you have? You have the Spirit living in your life. However, you are not in the flesh, Paul says in Romans, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, what? He doesn't belong to him. If you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you belong to Christ. At the moment of your conversion, you didn't feel that, you didn't necessarily know that, but immediately you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. There's another great truth that happened to these believers the moment that that they trusted Christ, and that was this sealing work of the Holy Spirit that the Bible teaches is the guarantee of our of our redemption, the down payment within us is the Spirit of God, that what God begins in us when he saves us, he'll bring it to its ultimate end when he takes us into glory. And the Spirit is the, 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 the promise of that very thing in our lives. By the way, we do not have the Spirit and lose the Spirit. Or as some Judaizers in our present day would say to us, well, you're saved, now you need to get the Spirit. No, if you're saved, you have the Spirit. But as we're going to talk about later in the next verse, the Spirit can always have more of you as you give your life to the Word of God and to the will of God expressed in God's Word. They were sealed by the Spirit. And then again in the book of Romans, there's another thing that happened to them when they were saved, and I trust to you likewise, and as a ministry of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. In Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. What is that? That is the confirming ministry of sonship of the Holy Spirit that says, I know that I know that I know because the Spirit of God confirms in my spirit that I am his and that I am his forever. Now, it always drives us back to the Word of God. But again, the question that he's asking them, how did you receive that spirit? Only one way, through the gospel of God's saving grace preached by the Apostle Paul. One thing that I want to find out from you, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? I was talking with a gentleman recently, and I just asked him about his relationship with the Lord because I knew he had told me before that he is not a believer, and I asked him what God's doing in his life. And I said, you know, today... Without Christ in your life, it's pointed on a man who wants to die, and after this, the judgment. If you don't have Christ in your life right now, if you die today, you're going you're to be separated from him for eternity. He said, I know that, and I'm working that out. <laughs> There's only way to work that, one way to work that out, and it's working it in through believing the gospel. How did you get this spirit, Paul is saying? It either came by works or by faith. It's either one It's either one or the other. And they knew what had happened to them. And there were even apostolic sign miracles, we'll see later, that confirmed to them the miraculous nature of their salvation. 
Look what else he asked them in verse 3. Here's the next primary question. Not only how did you get the Spirit, but he asked them the particular question with reference to how, the, how was the Holy Spirit, was it, how did the Holy Spirit bring them this newness of life or change, bring this change in their lives? Or another way of saying that in verse 3. Let me read it first. He's saying again, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being, keyword, are you being perfected in the flesh? And you start by grace, but now you're going to become sanctified some other way, by law or whatever else. Having begun by, are you now being perfected? Now that word perfected is just a beautiful word. It's throughout the New Testament many places. It conveys the idea of something being brought to its ultimate completion. And that's why we use this word sanctification. And we call it progressive sanctification because in the Christian life, day to day, through our continued growth in the Word of God and by the work of the Spirit, we are progressively becoming more like Jesus Christ. Amen? And only pastors have perfectly arrived at that ultimate end of perfection, right? Don't know where you're at in it. Hopefully you can say, I know this, I'm not where I once was because God is continually changing my life through this work of sanctification that has everything to do with what he said back in verse 2, the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Because there's one dynamic in the Christian life. Jesus said, you shall receive, in Acts chapter 1, you shall receive what? Starts with P, ends with R. You shall receive power. And what was he talking about? Pentecost. What happened to Pentecost? The coming of the Spirit of God and the initiation of the, of the Spirit in dwelling believers like we're talking about right now. So how does one live this Christian life? We live it by the enablement and the sanctifying work of the, of the Holy Spirit as we grow in truth and he brings the truth to bear upon our lives and we apply that truth with his help to live a life pleasing to him. And it's day-to-day change in this work of sanctification. But again, notice what he's saying. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, what is the flesh? It's living your life without God. In fact, when we bounce over to chapter 5, verse following, he reminds us of what we're capable to do in the flesh. It's really only one thing that we're able to do well in the flesh. What is it? Starts with S, ends with N. I'm doing a lot of spelling today, right? And all the flesh can do is just human effort alone. 516, I say walk by the power. Of the, I'm adding the word power, but walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you, will not, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. And in 19 through 21, it is not a good list. All the ways that we can live our lives independent of God and fruit of it as we live for self. 
Then he contrasts in verse 22, doesn't he? But the fruit of the Spirit is those things that we desire to be characterizing our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, how did that happen? Go back to chapter 2. We had a couple of weeks ago when Marshall drove this great truth home to us. When you believed that this gospel and your life was transformed, when did this all happen? Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, yet it's no longer I who live, but Christ now living in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, yes, I'm still alive physically, but I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. So having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? MacArthur has a great quote about this. How could you, how could you think that your weak, imperfect, still sinful flesh can improve on what the divine Spirit of God began in you when you first believed? Drifting from the provisions of grace into the efforts of law is ludicrous. Trying to be sanctified by all the list, legalistic, legalism list of do's and don'ts apart from the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Now, obviously, when we're in Christ, there's things we do and we love to do, and there's things that we don't because we don't want to displease the God of heaven. Amen? But the motivation of the heart is this new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, hey, you, you, you're not going to, in this sanctification, you're going to get nowhere without the Spirit's work in your life through the Word of God. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? And so I ask myself the question, am I trying to live the Christian life on my own? Or am I seeking to live the Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit, having spent time in the Word of God that is my guide and that is my spiritual food? And so if I'm somebody and I say, yes, uh, Pastor Kevin, I have trusted Jesus Christ, but no, I really don't spend time in the Word of God and thinking upon truth and marinating my mind and my life with truth, then I'm trying to live this Christian life in the flesh alone. And you can be sure of this, there is nothing more frustrating in all the world than trying to live for Christ independent of his help and his power that comes from his word. So we need truth. We need truth daily. We need to have our our, our minds transformed and renewed by the word of God continually that we experience this sanctifying work in our lives. We're desperate for truth, and the Spirit of God is what brings that to bear upon our lives. Notice what he asks them next, verse 4. Here's his next question as to relating what happened to them. And it is this. Did you suffer many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain... What do you mean they suffered things? Well, we go back to the book of Acts and we're mindful of the fact, 
Look with me at Acts 14, 21 and 22 that's on the overhead. Paul did something or said something everywhere that he went and preached the gospel and people responded. He told them, as long as you believe upon Jesus, life is going to be so easy and wonderful and it's the end of all your problems. Amen? Right? No, what did he tell them? Look what the text says. After he had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And he's asking them, well, why did you suffer then? If, if the Judaizers say you're not, your salvation isn't complete till all, you're doing all these things, well, then you suffered to no avail. You weren't even saved. But if you suffered on the basis that you were saying Jesus Christ and him crucified and I believed upon him and I believe he's coming again, then they paid a price for identifying with them. So he's asking them again, well, then how did this happen? What does this trace back to with reference to what you heard and the life-changing message of the gospel, transforming message of a life? So then in verse 5, he puts it together sums it up, and I'll seek to do the same. He says, so then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law, or did it happen through hearing with faith? And one of the things that were true of the Apostle Paul and other apostles was that the signs of a true apostle, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, were performed among them with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And those apostolic sign miracles were supernatural miracles that confirmed the reality of their message being from the God of heaven. And so when they preached the gospel there among the Galatians, Paul particularly, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Word, who was testifying to the Word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So what's he asking? Did this happen to you by trying to keep the law? No, it happened one way. It happened one way, by the hearing of faith. Makes us think of the book of Romans, doesn't it? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And they received this tremendous blessing because they didn't have what we have today. We don't need the signs and wonders to confirm my message today because we have it all right here in the complete revelation of God. We have everything we need to know about him, about us, and about how to be right with him and how to find our way to heaven through the word of God. But they didn't have all of that. And so that message was confirmed as being from God and from his apostle through these sign miracles of people being healed and events that took place that confirmed this message is from God. It's faith or works. It's always down to that, isn't it? Or as R.C. Sproul well says, you are saved by works. Christ's work on the cross. It's either what he's done or what you're doing. And Paul's argument with the, with the Galatians is, if you're going to make this what he's doing, plus what you're trying to do to get your way into heaven, 
you have a different gospel, and that gospel doesn't save. And that's how he begins the book in chapter 1 by saying, you are being disturbed with a different good news that is not good news at all. At all. Yesterday, we, a number of us men listened to uh, R.C. Sproul. He's one of our heroes, is he not? Don't you love R.C. Sproul? Please, just a few people say, yes, I love R.C. Sproul. He's in heaven enjoying the Lord right now, but such a great teacher of the Word of God. Not a perfect man, but a man who loved the Lord and was zealous for the holiness of our God. And he was talking about Luther's tower experience where right there in chapter 3, he wasn't quoting this verse, but right there in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And Luther, in his own study of of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, Jew first and the Greek And how verse 17 then was the impact upon Luther's life and him coming to grips that it wasn't with all of his monkery that was going to get him into heaven and all of the things that he tried to do, but it was going to be on the basis of what Christ had done and by the means of faith and faith alone. And as I was thinking about even this past week, I was remembering the first in 2006 the first of what was called the Together for the Gospel. Remember hearing about the Together for the Gospel. They concluded the last one, at least at this time, this, this past year. But I was at the inaugural one with several men from the church here down there in Louisville and uh, staying at this uh, big hotel together. In fact, that the, the conference itself was in a big, obvious conference room in the hotel, and there's about 500 of us uh, men. And they brought in the Guys that we always love to hear, along with R.C., was Dr. MacArthur and John Piper and Al Moeller and C.J. Mahaney and the whole, the whole lineup. And on that inaugural one, they, they assign topics to different men that are essential to, to preachers, to men preaching. And I remember I went back and I looked it up that, that R.C. Sproul, on that 2006 first Together for the Gospel, he was assigned to preach on the issue of the primary message of the, yeah, the, the, the center of Christian preaching. And he, of course, said the center on preach, Christian preaching is the very thing that we've talked about this morning in justification by faith alone through Christ alone. So I always remember when he got up, speak on that, and he mentioned the fact, can you believe it, men, they've asked me to preach on justification by faith. He said, I can preach on justification by faith in my sleep because that's the main thing. That's the thing he loved to preach on. That's the main thing of all things because it's the only way we're going to be made right with God is through faith and faith alone. So we remember, don't we? We don't want to ever forget like in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace, this grace of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, do you understand this? Not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. 
and not of works, lest any man should boast. So are you standing today in Christ and Christ alone as the basis that the God of heaven can look at you and you have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, not because you've earned it, no, but because Christ provided it and by faith it came to your account and you stand in Christ today as one that God sees in the righteousness of his own son. Maybe you say, I don't always act like it. Start a club. A lot of people will join. But that's how God sees you. And the Bible says, in light of how he sees you, now act like it and live a life pleasing to him. Bow in prayer with me, would you please? Father, may we never, never make claims of anything for the hope of our eternity other than what you have provided and what Christ has accomplished on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become that righteousness of God in him. How we praise you for that this morning. And may we look back upon, and I would ask that it's true of every person in this room, and if it's not true of you, trust Christ today. Trust in him alone today. Turn. Turn to him. And on the authority of the word of God, I can tell you this morning, he will forgive you and change your life. And may we never forget the wonder of it all, of what you've done for us, to us, and in us, all by grace. And to these things, all of his people said,